Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are joined today by Emily Temkin, the US editor for the New Statesman and the author of the book The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I realized as I was reading your book that I knew next to nothing about George Soros that didn't come from a conspiracy theory. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about who George Soros is and what he actually does? Of course. And and part of the reason that I wrote the book is that I think people who are familiar with the name George Soros today don't even know why they're familiar with that name, right? Why he became such an influential figure. And he is, if you separate it out from the conspiracy theory, he is actually a very influential figure in three fields. So George Soros was born in 1930 in Hungary and became very successful in finance. He's arguably the most famous currency speculator in... (laughs) all of human history. And after he amassed, you know, several millions also went into philanthropy. And basically, because as a not even a young man as a teenager as a child, his family survived Nazi occupation of Hungary, and then he escaped socialist Hungary, uh, because of this experience living in these oppressive regimes, what really mattered to him when he set out to create his philanthropic foundations was this concept of an, of an open society, which is an idea that comes from Karl Popper, who was his tutor at the London School of Economics when he studied there. And basically the idea of an open society, and like if any of your listeners are, are Popper heads, I'm sorry that this is so simplified, but basically the idea is that you and I separately, we neither one of us will ever have a perfect understanding. Right. But if we come together and we discuss and we debate, we can come to a more perfect understanding. And so the idea of this, of his philanthropic work is how do we foster a society, a country, a world in which more people are empowered and enfranchised and able to be at the table for that discussion and that debate? And how can we all together work toward this more perfect understanding this in, in a civic-based conception of society? And he also, beginning in really beginning in 2004 with the re-election of George Bush, to which he was vehemently opposed, became a major political donor in the United States, which I think is important both for understanding his actual influence and for why he's such a polarizing figure in the US. So in these three realms, in finance and philanthropy and in and in politics, he's had tremendous influence over the course of his his 90 years. One thing I didn't see when I was uh, reading the book is an explanation for where my Soros check is. Seems to have been lost in the mail. I wrote a book on him and I haven't gotten my Soros check. So if any conspiracy theorist is listening to this, that is a joke. Um, I, despite being a Jewish journalist, do not receive checks from Soros because indeed he does not cash them. So just to 
to spell that out. It was interesting to see that the sort of things he's doing are like buying people photocopiers rather than funding Antifa. Right. I mean, that was that was the move in his first. So he starts out philanthropically in, or his, his philanthropic work starts out in South Africa when it was still under apartheid because he, he gave scholarships to black students in apartheid South Africa and, and basically saw that the university where these scholarships were being given was really taking advantage of him and trying to use, uh, trying to not trying to dismantle the system. So he goes back to Europe, to his native Hungary and sets up a foundation there. And his signature move was buying photocopiers because with a photocopier, you kind of broke the state's hold on who because this is still socialist Hungary in the 80s, right? You broke the state's hold on who could disseminate information. And so his line was like, it made even people who weren't dissidents into dissidents, right? It, it expanded who could have access to information and to the spread of it. And I think even though that was very early on in his philanthropic career, to me, that action and the philosophy behind it is really important to understanding what's important to him philanthropically. Which is again, which is expanding the table and, and and inviting more people to it. And you can see it today, right? This summer here in the United States, there were all sorts of people who said, "Well, Soros is behind the Black Lives Matter movement," which is just it, it's not true. Now, Open Society did announced that they were giving hundreds of millions of dollars to organizations and groups that work on racial justice. But that is very different from saying that he is paying for the protests and the protesters. And the difference is that in one, Soros is supporting people who have already had this idea, who already want to work toward this goal. In the other, he is telling them what to think. And the difference is that of legitimacy. The difference is that of agency. So And if you look at Soros conspiracy theories, what you will see is that what many of them do is strip actors of their agency and say, you don't really have a reason to be in these streets, right? You're not really upset about police brutality. You're not really upset about state-backed violence against Black people. You're only here because Soros paid you to be here. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, it warps the philanthropic work that's actually being done. And third of all, and and arguably most, most importantly, it takes from people, their own agency, their own voice, their own place in this conversation. Soros is often depicted, as in this context, as being some kind of uh, sinister mastermind. And uh, another aspect of Soros's, uh, I guess, situation that's drawn attention to in these theories is the fact that he's Jewish. Can you speak to how Soros has emerged not only as a figure that pulls the strings, but does so as a Jewish person? It's hard to separate out the anti-Semitic part of the conspiracy theory, because the reason that the conspiracy theory is so effective is because it, or one of the reasons I should say that it's so effective is because it draws on anti-Semitic tropes. These have been around for basically as long as Soros has been a prominent figure. If you go back into the 90s in Hungary, you see people, political figures disparaging him as a Jew, but it's really reached a fever pitch since 2015. And even <laughs> even this year, right, you've, we now have major in this country, obviously, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, is sort of the one who perfected this, but we also have major Republican figures in my country who are who are pushing this. I think that two things make this really interesting in a dark and sad kind of way. The first is that if we were in the early 20th century, I think that the end of the conspiracy theories would have been the persecution of of Jewish people. And that's why we would have we would have been hearing conspiracy theories like, oh, this Jewish billionaire is flooding your country with migrants. And oh, this Jewish billionaire is is causing uh, destruction in your streets. Now, it's a means to an end, almost. Now, that's not to say that those who use these theories are not anti-Semitic, because if you're willing to use theories that get a Jewish person sent a pipe bomb, 
that have rhetoric that's then replicated in the shooting of a synagogue and the most violent act, anti-Semitic act that's been seen in the United States ever in history that is causing a rise in hate crimes you know, across the United States, then you're comfortable with anti-Semitism and you're perpetuating it and you're furthering it. So I'm in no way giving the people who, who use this an out. What I am saying is that I think that their goal is not just to, and maybe even not mainly to denigrate Jewish people, but to one, distract from their own, you know, either incompetence or corruption or illiberalism. And two, again, to strip the agency of people, the people who they are saying Soros is, is manipulating be that Black Lives Matter activists in the United States or people who work in immigrants and migrants and asylum seekers' rights in Europe. The other thing that I think is, again, interesting and dark and sad is that because of Soros's particular Jewish identity, you have people say things that are broadly understood to be anti-Semitic dog whistles. For example, Orban, when he was running for re-election, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we are fighting an enemy who is different from us and who is a rootless speculator, like, you know, not not of us, but different. And all these tropes of like the wandering Jew, the perpetual foreigner, the the money counter. Didn't have to say the word Jewish, but it's, you know, I'm your audience listening to this, I'm sure understood the like heard the dog whistle. But then because of Soros's particular uh, Jewish identity, because he's not particularly religious, because he's chosen to give to universal, you know, causes that could be seen as universal human rights and not particular Jewish causes, people say, well, I don't really think of him as a Jew. And they will find conservative Jewish people to say, I don't like Soros either. And it's like, you don't have to like him. But what we are all going to recognize is that the dogs still hear the whistles. And you were using anti-Semitic tropes and using a conspiracy theory that is as effective as it is because of anti-Semitism. So you now don't get to turn around and say, well, I don't think of him as a Jew, because obviously at some point you did, or you would not have embarked on the use of this theory. You recently wrote an article for the New Statesman called Anti-Semitism in the Time of Trump, and you opened it up by referring to an incident in uh, the 2016 election campaign where Trump's campaign released uh, material that depicted Hillary Clinton over a pile of cash with a Star of David next to her head, said most corrupt candidate ever. For me, that represented something of a shift, that the campaign was not only going to engage in Jew baiting, but that also there was seemingly very little consequence for it. Uh, what did you make of that? It's funny because after I published the article, a woman who now works in the Jewish democratic organizing space, so obviously she's not, you know, she's not like nonpartisan, but but uh, tweeted at me and said that she also remembered that and thought of it as like the moment that this became normalized in the Trump era. I mean, it stuck out, it's, it stuck out in my, in my memory for a reason. And one of the reasons is that I remember that as being a story as opposed to just like one in a series of horrible <laughs> events that, that happened in a given day. And the other is that I think it did, you know, looking back on it and looking back at the rhetoric that we've seen from Trump and others in his party since then, I do think that it kind of opened the floodgates. And, you know, I, I should say that I don't think that anti-Semitism is a left is a left or right-wing force. It doesn't belong to any party, but we have seen it normalized by the Republican Party over the past four years and then been told that, no, we're not seeing that because of his policies on Israel. And it's like, I mean, we can one can have a debate as to whether or not his policies are good or bad for Israel, but that, to me, stands apart from the fact that I don't live in Israel. I live in a country that in 2019 saw, according to the Anti-Defamation League, more anti-Semitic rhetoric than ever before in our country's history. And I live in the country that saw, during the Trump's first term, again, 
the most violent anti-Semitic act ever in the country's history. So I kind of don't want to hear, you know, if a group of people is telling you repeatedly that what you were, that the symbols you are using and the words that you're saying are anti-Semitic and saying, Hey, when you, when you isolate George Soros and use him in this way, you are using an anti-Semitic trope and you are making not only him, but other Jewish people, less safe while, by the way, stigmatizing and delegitimizing these other marginalized groups, and you keep using that trope, then you're you then then you it's been explained to you, right? Like it's not it's this is this is this was not a one off. And people articulated why it was hurtful and people articulated why it was dangerous. And they chose to ignore that. So yeah, I do I do think that that tweet represented a shift in something. And unfortunately, I don't know when or how it gets shifted back, because I don't think it's as simple as well, we have a new president elect. And so now, now it goes away, right? I think it's it's now out there. And there are people who have now been comfortable with it being out there. And it's going to, it's, I, it, it should, should this ever reverse, I think that will take a while. One of the more bizarre elements in the Soros myth is the designation of him being a Nazi because of his wartime experience. And that too has been adopted by some and propagated more vigorously in the last few years. One of the things it brings to mind is the conspiratorial idea of the Jewish financier, both manipulating the stock markets and the financial system generally, while at the same time, you know, supporting the Bolsheviks or so on and so forth. So can you talk to like what was identified as being, you know, why is Soros considered a Nazi and, and how... Do you think that those ideas, he's both, uh, you know, uh, this Jewish stereotype and also a Nazi, how, how do those things fit together in this conspiracy theory? I have to say that of all the conspiracy theories I've read about Soros, and there have been a lot, um, to me, this is, this is just the most hateful one. Because to say that as somebody who as a teenager survived, who as a Jewish teenager survived Nazi rule, to turn around and say, well, he was a Nazi, is just, it's unconscionable. What happened? was that Soros's father collected real and forged documents during the Nazi occupation of, and then the Arrow Cross rule of Hungary during World War II, so that he and his family and friends and friends of friends could hide out during the Holocaust as Christians, so that they had a chance of survival. At one point, Soros was with a Hungarian officer who went to go take an accounting of material goods in a Jewish person's home. And Soros had to go along because he was a teenager in hiding with this person. This has been seized upon. He also once, he was called to the to the Judenrat, which was the council of Jewish people whom Nazis made do their bidding. And, you know, his father kind of told him, don't, you're, you're not going to go back there. You're not going to give out these notices to Jewish people to, to be rounded up. First of all, this is victim blaming of just the, uh, the most obvious kind. I think that it's, it's, deeply it's outrageous <laughs> like it's it's hurtful it's hateful it's not true but the reason that people do it i think goes back to well first of all it itself is in a way a jewish stereotype of like the conniving jew who's only out for himself and, and doesn't care about anyone so it perpetuates the stereotype but at the same time it does what we were talking about earlier which is dismissing soros's jewish identity while playing on it right so it says what, what it does is to say, well, he is not a real Jewish person. He, is, in fact, is a Nazi, while then playing with a conspiracy theory that uses the fact that he's Jewish and that plays on Jewish tropes. So it tries to distance the teller, the, the, the spreader of the conspiracy theory from charges of anti-Semitism that they can then spread the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. 
You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We are currently talking to Emily Tampkin about George Soros. Something you describe in the book is how Soros initially becomes a figure of conspiracy in sort of Central and Eastern Europe, specifically in Slovakia, where he sort of fit into this ready-made mould as a boogeyman. Could you explain why he fit into that mould in Slovakia, but also how did we get from there to here where he's now this boogeyman being invoked by even Australian politicians? Mm-hmm. In, so the, the case that you're talking about is in 1998, Mechiar, who was ruling Slovakia and you know Madeleine Albright at the time called Slovakia the black hole of Europe. Slovakia didn't make it into, was not on the same like, accession path uh, to transatlantic institutions as the rest of Central Europe because they were run by uh, Mechiar. And in the 90s, it isn't that Soros conspiracy theories didn't exist in the 90s. They did, but it was they were more fringe figures. And Mechiar, the reason that I write about the Slovak case is that in 1998, they had elections and there was this big get out the vote effort. It was funded by, you know, private philanthropic institutions, but also by foreign governments. But the people who were getting out the vote were themselves Slovak and they mobilized, you know, basically what they realized was that Mechiar was counting on the disillusionment of and cynicism of his people. And they were able to convince people like, no, we don't, we can believe in something. We can believe in something that's better and different and, you know, accountable and democratic. Uh, and it worked. But over the course of that election, both he and state-backed media and, you know, his cronies painted those who were trying to get out the vote as Soros stooges. And in fact, there's a cartoon that I talk about in the book that uh, one of the guys who was like the spokesperson for this get out the vote effort at the end of the election is smoking a cigar and the cigar says Soros on it. So it had been there. And the reason that it was chosen in Slovakia is like why, you know, why, why Soros is that he, well, there's two reasons. The first is that the Open Society Foundations by, by the 1990s were already a global endeavor. He was extremely well known throughout Europe not only for his financial work, but also for the scholarships that he had given out, the arts and humanities programs that he had funded, you know, the debating trips that had been paid for by Open Society. So you have a very familiar name and then you have an identity that, as one Slovak put it to me, if you wanted to think of a villain, like this is the most cartoonish villain. So he's born in Hungary, which because of like the ethnic tensions within Europe. It's, if you're if you're Hungarian, it, it means something in Slovakia and Romania and and in Hungary because you're a Hungarian who left. So he's born in Hungary. He's now American. He lives in New York. He's Jewish. He works in finance. Like all your synapses light up when you hear this man's identity, and you can build him up without actually and and denigrate him and say that your opposition is just a Soros stooge, and you never actually really have to build your opponent up into being a, a legitimate political threat. You can just attack Soros. So it's it's quite it's it's quite savvy and had been there throughout the '90s and you you see it you know throughout the 2000s especially here in the United States he uh, was very prominent in his condemnation of George W. Bush and and support for get out the vote efforts in 2004 but really we got to the 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 level of conspiracy theory around Soros that we are at now beginning in 2015 Viktor Orban in Hungary was back in power and and gets back into power in part because. The promises that liberalism had made to Central and Eastern Europe had not fully been met for all of the people. There's a lot of, you know, there's some people are left behind or not left behind, but feel resentful of those who were less left behind than they are. 
like the global financial crisis, people are hurting. They reelect uh, Orban, but he comes back to power and he's looking around for a political enemy to blame now that he, you know, is, is not of the opposition. And he and this uh, American Republican Jewish operative by the name of Arthur Finkelstein go back into the history books of conspiracy and come up with Soros, who incidentally had been Orban's benefactor because Orban had Fidesz, his party back when it was a student club, had received money from open society, or it was known in the 80s as the Soros Fund in Hungary. And Orban himself had gone to Oxford on a Soros scholarship. And Soros had given money to Hungary after the flood in 2010, or not flood, the, the mudslide in 2010 to, to boot help the city of Budapest. But nevertheless, Orban, I guess, turns on Soros and, and blames him for the migrant crisis that came about because Syrian people were fleeing civil war. In their country. The interesting thing about this is that it really picks up in the fall of 2015, which was after the summer when it was really at its height, which to me suggests that that this was a much as much about political power as it was that this was more about political power, excuse me, than it was genuine fear. And it works for Orban, right? It, it's a very effective political tool. And then we see it spread throughout the world. Like I wrote a piece on Soros in 2017, and then I wrote one a year later in 2018. The 2017 one was really focused on Central and Eastern Europe. The 2018 one was much more focused on the U.S. And the reason was that by the 2018 midterms here in the U.S., you were hearing Soros blamed for the migrant caravan, blamed for the protests against Brett Kavanaugh, who's now a Supreme Court justice. And you, again, exactly as you say, now it's a, it's all over the world. It's Israel, Australia, throughout Europe, the United States. It's it's become a global phenomenon. And in part, that's because there are similar actors, right? So, a, you know, a Republican operative helps a Hungarian bring this about. There are then Hungarian lobbyists who kind of try to push some of these lines here in Washington, D.C. But in part, it's through social media. And in part, it's because if something is very effective in one country, and it's about a figure who's known around the world, there's nothing stopping another another political leader uh, from using it. One of the ironies that might be associated with George Soros and his quest for an open society is that to the extent that these projects have worked in Central and Eastern Europe, one of the things they've opened up is the return of various forms of ultranationalism, especially in Hungary. Uh, the ideology that Soros pursues and the foundations he's established dedicated to an open society, nonetheless have produced some closed thinking. How do you think Soros views this outcome? The great irony of it is that part of the reason that he became as active as he was in Central and Eastern Europe specifically is that he understood in the early 90s how the threat that nationalism posed to this region after the Cold War and the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc that there, that there was going to be something that filled this ideological space and that it didn't, it wasn't necessarily going to be liberalism. It could easily be nationalism. And indeed, we're, we're seeing that now. You know, I did ask him about this and, and have asked those close to him about it. And their thinking is kind of, you do, you know, you do what you can, like you build your sandcastle, it gets knocked over and, and you have to try to rebuild it. A lesson that I personally came away from in writing this book is that it kind of can't be up to a George Soros. It can't be up to a billionaire philanthropist. This has to come from people within the societies if it's going to be real tangible change. And I think I think to an extent, he recognizes that too, which is part of the reason that Soros is one of the billionaires now saying that he should be taxed more. It, it can't be an open society if whether it's an open society is up to not just Soros, but to a very a, a handful of uh of very wealthy people. But I also think that that's Soros's legacy. I think that some of the people who are questioning 
the setup of our society and its financial systems and its capitalism and, and the, the, the setup of the way things are in the US and in Europe and around the world have themselves benefited at some point from a Soros scholarship or from some Soros program or from money that he gave to to try to fight the war on drugs or from and so on and so on. And so I think that that that's part of his legacy too, that we now have a more robust criticism and debate over what it is to be an open society. And I think that if we are able to come back from this brink, it will be in part because of him. And that the the questioning of him and the criticism of him, not the conspiracy theory, but but the, you know, the the question of like, well, why is society this way? Why why is it like this? And how can we make more long lasting positive change? And how can we bring everybody to the discussion? But but actually, you know, not just for a couple of years. I do think that, that that that's part of the influence of Soros as well. You definitely shouldn't have given that scholarship to Orban. Well, you know, that's it actually happened in a few cases where it was Orban. He um, he was very pro Saakashvili, who now, you know, who went on to run Georgia and then remain friendly with Orban and become critical of Soros and his political involvement. But but do you, I mean, it gets kind of like, do you get to say for every Orban, how many people went to the Central Central European University and Oxford and this debating club or and so on and so forth, who have made a change in Europe who who wouldn't have otherwise, right? We can't, we can't say I do think it speaks to why we shouldn't have one person <laughs> handing out. I mean, it's not just him, it's a whole foundation, but but why, you know, whether somebody is a good political leader or a bad political leader should maybe not be <laughs> up to the support of a, a handful of our of our ruling class. I guess just finally, I often see people who engage with Soros conspiracy theories, especially in the wake of COVID when we've seen this boom in the conspiracy theory industry. I see people engaging with Soros ideas where you might describe them as a low information participants. I'm not, you know, not the media figures or the politicians talking about it, but just ordinary citizens who I'm not entirely sure they're aware that they're trafficking in anti-Semitism as much as they're just parroting buzzwords that they've seen on social media or Fox News. Is it possible to explain to these people why they should be more attentive to the anti-Semitic dimensions of what they're parroting? I guess what I would just say to those people is that while I understand that perhaps you did not come to criticism of this person because he's Jewish, the reason that you know who he is is because there are other people who do understand that he's Jewish and who are saying something that is not true and playing on anti-Semitic stereotypes in order to both protect themselves and to delegitimize and denigrate your fellow citizens. And that the reason to disbelieve and fight against a Soros conspiracy theory is not you know, I'm not particularly interested in protecting a person who's worth $8 billion. I'm just not. Do I think that, I, I, I don't think anybody should be lied about. I don't think that anybody should be sent a pipe bomb. But to me, the real victim here is not Soros, right? It's those whose work is is dismissed because they're dismissed as Soros Jews. It's those who are less safe because they're, because they're Jewish or because they're dismissed as Soros Jews. And so the reason to fight against Soros conspiracy theories has nothing to do with has 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 very little in my opinion to do with Soros and has everything to do with the rest of us. Emily, thanks very much for joining us. If people w- would like to get the book, it is available uh, wherever you get your books. The influence of Soros, and p- where can people find you online? Oh, I'm on. I'm a, an overly active tweeter at um, at Emily C. Tampkin, and I'm writing regularly for the New Statesman, so you can find me there too. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, that was very interesting, Andy. It was, Cam. That is all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll be back next week. 
See you later. Bye-bye. of children in the woods the broken branches of a tree the feel of pounding in your blood the smell of earth beneath your feet don't forget to wear your gloves don't forget to wear your shoes it started hailing from under your nails So it gets into your nose And so it gets into your eyes You'll never get it out your Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.